You are listening to a Wavel Room podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go for your podcasts. But if that's not enough for you, head to wavelroom.com where you can read our articles, you can follow us on social media, where you can come and join us at one of our live events. Hello, and welcome to this Wavel Room podcast recorded in partnership with War Talks. This podcast features Dr. Jonathan Boff, and his talk is titled Lessons for the British Army of Today from the First World War. This talk is based on Dr. Boff's book, Haig's Enemy, which was judged the best British Army military book of the year, or Bambi, for 2019. Dr. Boff is a senior lecturer in military history at the University of Birmingham and is interested in how institutions and individuals respond to the challenges of war. He is also a counsellor for the British Army Records Society and the Assistant Secretary for the British Commission of Military History. He can be tweeted at Jonathan Boff. This talk was recorded in Aldershot on the 4th of December 2019. The Wavell Room would like to congratulate Dr. Boff for winning Bambi 19 and thank him for this excellent talk. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Thank you very much indeed for coming along. Uh, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, this book, Haig's Enemy, um, but actually only a very little bit, really. I've, I have talked about Haig's Enemy before here uh, once, but also because the more I've thought about it over the last few months, the more I've realised that, uh, although it's a book on the face of it about a, well, frankly, pretty obscure German prince, uh, it's trying, I think, to, to work on a couple of other levels uh, as well, one of which I was conscious of when I was writing it and one which I've only really become conscious of since. The, the one that I was conscious of at the time was that I thought we were overdue a look at the First World War from the German perspective. We had a lot of British or Anglo-centric British and Commonwealth histories of the First World War, but, but never really, to my mind anyway, heard enough of, from the other side of the wire, and that seemed to me a big gap in the historiography of the First World War that was worth doing something about, and Ruprecht seemed to be a good chap to pick on to enable me to, to, to do that. Now, however, history books are always just as, almost as much about the present as they are about the past. And over the time that I was writing that book, I spent a lot of time working with your army, our army, uh, in a variety of generally pretty lowly capacities. Um, and a little bit with the US military in, in Washington, which gave me a bit of a feel for some of the preoccupations and some of the issues that were points of concern, shall we say, for both uh, our militaries in the aftermath of Iraq and Afghanistan, and the frustrations, perhaps, it would be fair to say, that the militaries were feeling. And uh, so, in a sense, uh, this is also a book which... Uh, Unconsciously, I think, perhaps at the time, I picked up, I learned a lot from those, those interactions. And, and so unconsciously, this became a book really about the British Army and, to some extent, the American Army in Iraq and Afghanistan and some of the struggles uh, that both had in those, in those conflicts. So what I thought I might do today is just to try and pull out, perhaps a little bit more explicitly than I did in the book, some of the, what I see anyway as a civilian, obviously, civilian academic, student of war, uh, some of the lessons of the, of the First World War for us uh, and, and our army today. Now, there's a, a long list of things that would be possible to talk about uh, under this rubric. The First World War contains all sorts of lessons for uh, militaries today, for, for all the way from the technical, casualty evacuation techniques and triage, 
all the way, you know, bridging wet, uh, wide wet gaps, all that kind of stuff, through to some issues which are verging on the motherhood and apple pie, the importance of, of fighting with allies, uh, for example, through to some altogether more challenging uh, issues. Uh, for instance, the importance of a robust civil-military relationship between uh, leaders, politicians, uh, and generals. Uh, the, importance or, or the importance of identifying the exact kind of war that one is fighting and fighting it appropriately. Um, <clears throat> the difficulty of predicting the next war, and so the necessity for having a, a, a sufficient flexibility in your, in your military that you can adapt and transform in contact. Um, fighting the right wars in the first place. Uh, these are all uh, Im important issues. The myth and the reality of, of mission command, uh, something that uh, comes through a lot uh, in this book because it's, it, it comes through a lot in the German army. All of these are, are, are issues which I think are hard, uh, and uh, important today, and they were hard and they were important during the First World War. And I, I hope uh, that you'll find stuff about all of those uh, in this book. But what I thought I would do today is just talk about two specific areas, one pretty uh, concrete, pretty tactical, and, and one rather broader and more abstract. But what they both come down to effectively is, or the, the at the risk of spoiling my, you know, of, of eating my own sandwiches, the point I'm trying to get to is that it's really important that we look deep inside ourselves and are very realistic with what we see when we look in the, in the mirror in the mornings about the organizations with which, within which we operate, the problems that we confront, and how we might do so best, playing to our real strengths rather than perhaps our imagined ones. So let me start <coughs> with the tactical uh, example, and I want to uh, talk particularly about the situation at the end of September 1917, uh, during the Third Battle of Ypres, Battle of Passchendaele. Uh, many of you will know that the initial British offensive that started on the 31st of July had run out of steam, and they tried to relaunch the offensive in towards the end of September um, uh, using a new operational approach known as bite and hold. The idea being that instead of trying to break through the German lines uh, and send cavalry flying off in all different directions, they would just advance as far as the, the range of the British artillery would allow them to, to stay within, if you like, artillery cover range, uh, <coughs> advance a thousand yards or so into the German lines, dig in, consolidate, and then wait for the German counterattack that they knew was going to come, because German counterattacks always come. Um, always did then, always do now. Now, the German defenders were operating a textbook, elastic defense in depth. Uh, but, but that couldn't handle this bite and hold uh, approach. And so in a series of battles in the end of September, what the Germans found was that their forward defense was not strong enough to stall the initial British attack, and yet the state of battlefield communications in 1917 and just the condition of the battlefield itself made the counterattacks that were supposed to regain any lost ground and regain the initiative effectively impossible. So the Germans really didn't know what to do. And for the first time uh, in the whole campaign, they, they found themselves forced to pull in uh, reinforcements because 
they couldn't handle what was going on. And so they started looking around for countermeasures to this bite and hold approach. Now, <clears throat> if you believe the story that is enshrined in the German official history, which is the most detailed record we have of this process, well, they called on their defensive expert, a chap called Fritz von Losberg, some of you may have heard of, uh, whose idea was that instead of running this defense in depth, they should, cons they should strengthen the forward crust to prevent any kind of British break-in uh, in the first place. That was his idea. And uh, according to the, to, the, to the narrative, at a meeting on the 30th of September, that is adopted as policy. However, uh, it doesn't work. Battle of Broadsinder on the 4th of October, uh, the, uh, the uh, British and Commonwealth forces roll over the Germans again, and therefore the Germans then go back to a, a modified version of defence in depth again uh, for the next battle, which was, is the, uh, was on the 7th of October. Now, so if you believe this story, within two weeks the Germans had managed to operate three pretty much different uh, tactical schemes of defence. An impressive level of flexibility, uh, I'm sure that we would all agree. There's only one problem with it, which is that the story isn't true, uh, so far as we can tell. Um, not only was Losberg not the only voice that was advocating this uh, crust defence, that was pretty widespread. There were large numbers of staff officers at, at OHL, German Supreme Headquarters, uh, including Ruprecht, in fact, uh, uh, calling for this. Um, nor because to some extent it doesn't really matter what the orders were for the frontline units. They didn't have the time to, to readjust their tactics or to, let, let alone to practice them uh, under these new conditions. So, so the chances are, the evidence we have is that most of the units didn't change their tactics at all uh, through any of those iterations. But also because <clears throat> there were much simpler and more traditional expl explanations for what was going on and, th and, those, and the problem that the, the British were generating for the Germans was not a tactical problem at all. It was an operational problem. That the rate of attrition that the Germans were suffering as a result of these bite and hold tactics was already starting to eat away at the quality of German replacements. And there was also a, a leadership problem uh, on, the, on the German side. Now, so the question arises why the official historians wrote the story up in, in, in the way they did. Um, and, and really, there are three reasons uh, why it was attractive to them to do so. Uh, the first, of course, was they could scapegoat Losberg <laughs> and say it was all his fault uh, and deflect attention away from the fact that they all had their f fingerprints, or many of them had their fingerprints on this particular, uh, this particular change. Secondly, it, it emphasized how rational and systematic and flexible the whole German staff system was, which was absolutely something they wanted to, to, to big up. Uh, and thirdly, it, and this is perhaps I think the most important point, if we think about when these official histories were being written, well they were being written in the 1920s and 1930s, what was the prime mission of the German army in the 1920s and 1930s? Well it wasn't blitzkrieg, they weren't thinking about using the German army as an offensive weapon, not until 1936 or, or maybe even 1938. Number one fear number one job that the German army had was the fear of the French coming over the Rhine uh, and having another go. It was how to defend a weak Germany, as they saw it, 
against uh, aggression from either France or even potentially Poland. <clears throat> and so working out how you run a defence was very important, and this elastic defence, they thought in the 1920s and 30s, was the best way uh, of, of doing that. No accident, of course, that the official history was being written by who? Well, by former general staff officers from OHL, uh, in most cases, who'd been placed in the official history section specifically, because Germany wasn't allowed to have a general staff between the wars, in theory, uh, specifically to keep the sort of manoeuvrist flame uh, of Schlieffen and, and Moltke the Elder alive uh, uh, and to inculcate and provide lessons for the cadres of German officers that were being trained uh, between the wars. Uh, now, as a matter of fact, this is a, bit, a little bit in parentheses, this, this revised defence in depth was never really put to the test during the, the rest of the Battle of uh, Third Battle of Ypres. Um, as you all know, British offensives continued uh, right up until November 1917, but frankly, the number one enemy by this stage was weather and logistics, and not really the Germans uh, at all. Uh, when the Germans did try elastic defence uh, in 1918, in um, summer and autumn of 1918, it didn't work. But frankly, by then, the situation had changed so much that you can't really compare uh, the two, I don't think, or at least not terribly well. Anyway, the, the lessons, I think, that arise from this episode, I think there are three of them, uh, really. And the first is that the German general staff was seeking tactical solutions to what was, in fact, an operational uh, challenge of bite and hold and attrition. And this is a theme that you can see throughout the history of the German army, well, pretty much from Frederick the Great, actually, uh, but certainly from Schlieffen all the way through to Stalingrad. The German army, like most militaries, was a can-do organization. It saw its job as finding solutions. And what it understood best and was best at doing was generating tactical solutions. And therefore, that's what it was trying uh, to do. Uh, the second uh, thing that comes out of this is the intellectual arrogance, I think, of its commanders. Uh, men like Ludendorff and his courtiers at OHL were convinced not only that there was a single solution to the problems that they faced, but also that they were the people to find it. And as a result, they increasingly centralized doctrine formulation and idea generation back into OHL to make sure that they were, de they were deciding uh, what, was, what was going to go on. That restricted the initiative of their subordinates, of course, and ended up having the effect of making Germans rather predictable to their enemies. Indeed, the whole bite and hold tactic is predicated uh, on the idea that the Germans will launch counterattacks. Uh, and the third point that comes out of it, I think, is that the uh, German army, or the interwar German army's main mechanism for codifying, collating and codifying lessons learnt uh, <clears throat> was distorted by official historians effectively pursuing their own agenda uh, during the war. Uh, and by misrepresenting the transformation, in, the way that transformation and contact had been handled during 1917 and in other examples throughout the war, which I won't go into now, well, they encouraged a fascination with tactical detail which contributed to many of the problems that the Wehrmacht faced in the 1930s and obviously particularly in the 1940s 
which distracted the Wehrmacht from the strategic and the political horrors uh, that it faced during the Second World War. So I think to summarize, there are perhaps three points that, that I think are, are, are relevant today. Uh, the first is to find, try and find solutions uh, which address the real problems that you face uh, rather than the ones that you know best how to fix. Second is not to assume that a, that a solution exists, much less that you're the person to find it. Uh, and the third one is, is that intellectual integrity uh, about the past is, is crucial to the integrity uh, of lessons learned processes. Um, if you infect those lessons learned processes with present day concerns, you end up misrepresenting the past and possibly drawing the wrong conclusions for the present. Now that's a, a fairly specific example. Perhaps I can sort of widen that out into my, into my second, more abstract uh, thing, which is about, the whole, uh, about learning and organizational culture in general. Because the kind of problems that the Germans were having in 1917 that we just discussed, of course, the British were having either the mirror image of those problems, or in many cases, the same problems throughout the, at various points throughout the war as well. And yet, if you look at the British Army by 1918, you've got to argue, I think, that it had learnt not only how to fight in the conditions of modern war, but also that it had learnt how to learn in the conditions of modern war. It had evolved a whole system of learning systems, if you like, some of them very formal, doctrine pamphlets, schools, courses, centrally driven, uh, some of them very informal, using the, the traditional social networks uh, of the British Army um, to, to spread information and best practice around. Um, <clears throat> either way, they were finding lots of different ways to get information moving around the organization, information and ideas moving around the organization uh, at once, in ways which contributed to the uh, innovation and, and transformation. Uh, that was underway. Now, frankly, historians don't really know to what extent this was an accident <laughs> or done on purpose. We still need, there's still more research to be done there, I think. It's a bit unclear. What we do know is that implementation was pretty patchy. You know, for all that there were units that were perfectly capable of getting the new ideas and putting them into operation and making them work, right to the end of the war, there were still some units that just frankly never seemed to get the hang uh, of what it was all about. Uh, so, so the BEF did not, it seems to me, either fully internalize or systematically implement all the lessons learned. It did enough of that to win. <laughs> but if you look at it as a learning organization, it looks, I think, rather haphazard certainly in comparison to the French and the Germans, who, for all the, the drawbacks I'll come to in a moment, certainly were capable of generating uniform change in a systematic fashion, in a way that the British Army did not seem able to do. Uh, both the French and the Germans had a much more centralized system, as we've already discussed a little bit. Uh, with the um, centre really promoting adaptation rather than absorbing it and recycling it. <clears throat> However, I think if you look at the British Army of the time, 1914-18, the, 
and, and say that it was a haphazard learning organisation, to some extent we are looking at it, we're misunderstanding the culture of the British Army uh, at that time. Uh, and I think we're sort of looking through today's spectacles, if you like, at, at yesterday's institution. And I think we're doing that because we're in the habit of thinking in modern Anglo-American military terms, where innovation and transformation is primarily either, or this is neither and or, I suppose, uh, is driven either within a NATO context, where you need to have uh, a lot of interoperability, um, or is largely driven by an American military, uh, which is on a much larger scale, obviously, than, than, than we operate at, which has a huge organization in TRADOC to generate these ideas and then to disseminate them through the organization. In both cases, clarity and uniformity are very important if you're going to get different units, either from different ends of the United States or, indeed, from different nations, working together in mutually predictable uh, ways. Now, by those kind of standards, yes, the British Army of 1914-18 looks a little bit amateurish. Um, the British Army had a long tradition of laissez-faire uh, in the run-up to 1914. The guiding principle of all the training was that the commanding officer of a unit should be the man who was responsible for training the men that he would lead into action. And that inevitably meant that there was a lot of flexibility left to individuals to train their men in, in, uh, as they saw fit. Within, it's true, some broadly accepted and sort of general principles of, of war. But, but otherwise, it was very much left to, to the COs. And, and this flexibility seemed to work well, given that British soldiers pre-1914 were likely to be fighting all over the world in a huge variety of different environments and circumstances, whereas the French and Germans pretty much knew that their big conscript armies were going to be fighting in continental Europe uh, in a pretty predictable uh, set, of, set of circumstances. This flexibility also fed into the way that British officers perceived themselves. They saw themselves as good at adaptation, good at improvisation, uh, as pragmatists, rather than the French and Germans, who they tended to see as theoreticians, who were interested in programmatic solutions, uh, and uh, rather abstract. They didn't, the British had a sort of distaste for theory and for prescriptive rules, uh, I think it's fair to say. And as a result, between 1914 and 1918, the British Army, which remained dominated at its core by a cadre of pre-war professional soldiers. Uh, I'd be under no uh, illusions about that, even as it expanded immensely. Uh, throughout that period, the British, or during that war, the British Army managed somehow to allow a lot more free play to the periphery, uh, if you like, than the French or the Germans uh, did. As a result, particularly in 1918, when operations became more mobile and the need for synchronized fires, I beg your pardon, uh, was relatively unimportant compared with maneuver, uh, the British were a very unpredictable enemy uh, that the Germans found very hard to deal with, in stark contrast, as we've already discussed, with the sometimes predictability of, of the German army. So what we have, I think, is a, is a contrast between two militaries, uh, uh, 
with very different approaches to innovation and adaptation during the First World War. You've got the Germans, on the one hand, very centralized, very programmatic, very uniform, very systematic. On the other hand, you've got the British, <coughs> devolved, unsystematic, and ad hoc. Now, as it happens, we know that the British won. Uh, and, and, I, and I would argue, anyway, that innovation and adaptation was a major part of that victory. But just because that was the outcome in 1918, I think, doesn't necessarily mean that this organic, pragmatic British model in itself is inherently, was inherently better than the systematic German one in all contexts. In fact, if you look at the example of the French, who were much closer to the German way of doing things, uh, it worked that way worked perfectly well for the French on the Western Front. So what this suggests to me is that it was possible for programmatic approaches to work on the Western Front. So it wasn't the learning culture itself that was decisive uh, in this war. And I think this is the key point. It was the way that the institutions worked with the learning culture that they understood they were working within. Uh, and the big difference there, I think, excuse me, is that the British very clearly understood the laissez-faire spirit uh, that they had and managed to work with the cultural grain of the organisation, if you like, and that way facilitated change and enhanced effectiveness. Whereas the German army thought it was very flexible, but in fact it wasn't. Under pressure particularly, the agility that it thought it had turned into arthritis. <clears throat> and the conflict, which I haven't discussed much, I'm happy to later if we have questions, between devolved authority and central control uh, became a significant disruptor to its attempts to change. The drive for one-size-fits-all solutions, in fact, undermined effectiveness uh, in the German army. So the point I, th I suppose I'm trying to make is that knowing how to drive change, even revolutionary change in time of war, uh, requires acute sensitivity to organizational culture. And the British in the First World War had it, and I'm not sure that the Germans did. And so the lasting lesson of the First World War for modern militaries, I think, is not that they should fight in this way or fight in that way, but that they need to understand the culture within which they must work or do work, while also trying to create a culture which maximizes their ability to respond flexibly and creatively to the situations in which they find themselves. Now, it's easy for a civilian uh, to say, Understanding the ethos of any organization uh, is extremely difficult, even if you've worked in it for 30 years, uh, I think it would be fair to say. And indeed, for most militaries, uh, in fact, most organizations, it doesn't often, often doesn't make an awful lot of sense to talk about a single ethos anyway. I'm sure there are representatives here of lots of different regiments and lots of different traditions uh, who know exactly what I'm talking about uh, on that front. And a further pro problem is that it's not necessarily the kind of change that one can bring about to organizational culture in a two or four year posting uh, is very often not terribly easily observable, measurable, uh, quantifiable, uh, or clear to your boss. Uh, but nonetheless, one sometimes has to be prepared, I think, to play a rather longer game 
uh, and accept that results might take uh, up to a generation to make themselves felt. The point underlying both these cases that I've talked about this evening, the one very specific one, the one rather large and woolly, uh, is the need for intellectual honesty uh, about our organization and about the situation in which we find ourselves. Now, intellectual honesty about the present is really difficult for all sorts of reasons, political pressures, whatever. We can all think of personal ones. We can all think of a, a, of a, whole, a whole range. But it's crucial to the integrity of the learned lessons, lessons learned process. Um, intellectual honesty about the past is just as crucial, uh, I would argue, and, and it should, theoretically, be easier to achieve, but in fact, I'm not sure it is. Uh, Present-day concerns inevitably tend to, or will inform and should inform the lessons learned process, but we have to find a way to stop them, to allow them to inform it without infecting it, I suppose. Otherwise, we end up misrepresenting the past, and drawing the wrong conclusions from it. More history is not necessarily the answer, but better history maybe. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening. The Wavell Room is free to use, but it's not free to produce. So head down to wavellroom.com and maybe donate us some money so that we can keep going and keep creating that content that we know you love. Thank you. <laughs>